Second Corinthians chapter three, beginning in verse one, Paul writes, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. In this chapter, Paul writes about the grace of God. And he's also going to later write about the glory of the new covenant. Now, the chapter provides an important bridge because Paul is going to hint at the Old Testament law the message of the law, and then he's going to talk about the message of God's grace. And it would appear that there's this Jewish faction at Corinth who were claiming that Paul wasn't a real or a true apostle. And they said, this guy's not for real. He's not a true apostle like Peter, James, and John. He doesn't even have a certificate of ordination from Calvary Chapel in Jerusalem. And so... It would appear that some people had shown up at Corinth with letters or credentials. And so they sought to discredit Paul. But Paul is again going to use the occasion to contrast the gospel of grace with the God, with, with the law. It was Richard Parker who wrote, God doesn't call people who are qualified. He calls people who are willing and then he qualifies them. There's a reason why Paul will write. There's not many noble. It's incredible when I think about my friends who preach the gospel. I think about Rawl, who basically his mind was practically blown and Steve Mays. Uh, I think of all of these men who I grew up with, who were bikers, who were Drug users and drug dealers and and people who were in every kind of weird and wicked thing that you can imagine. And then God takes them and saves them. If you've ever wondered, can God use somebody like me? Look around. So what qualifies a person for ministry? What are his or her credentials in the grand scheme of things? It would appear that there's two standards, God's standards and man's standards. For Paul, God's standard has to include this question. What makes you qualified to minister or to preach or to impart the gospel? And Paul returns with the question, who do you belong to? Who saved you? Who changed you? Who forgave you? The minister's credentials are not letters of commendation in verse 1, but rather lives written on the minister's heart, verse 2. And oddly enough, these lives are written by Christ in verse 3, but God's will sometimes uses the minister as the stylus or the pen to write on the surface of the soul. So qualification and fitness for ministry comes from God. Let's look at verse one, the letters of commendation. It says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? I want you to think for a moment. In chapter one and in chapter two, Paul has been defending his motives. Now, Paul will defend his message. In the Corinthian church, some, again, seem to accuse Paul of pride, of arrogance. Some people just basically said, who made you a messenger of God? Who gave you the message of God? 
Who elected you to be the pastor? And so, what credentials does Paul have? And by the way, what credentials do you really need? Is he really a messenger from God? Does he really have a message from God? Why should people listen to anything that Paul has to say? And you should pause at this moment because I know that at some point in your life you've asked that question. Why should I open this book? Why should I read it? Why should I believe anything that it has to say to me? Of course, the right answer is because in this book are the promises of life and wisdom, forgiveness and hope. So when Paul writes in, in verse one, do we begin again to commend ourselves? In other words, is, is this something where I need to tell you or do we need as some others epistles of commendation? This as some others are the critics or the false teachers that he talked about in chapter 2, verse 17. Remember right before that, for we are not as so many, that's who he's talking about, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Paul's basically writing, look, we're not in it for the money. We didn't corrupt the word of God as many have done in the ministry. We base our ministry on the call of God for our lives. There was a lady, Elizabeth Dole, some of you are familiar. She was the wife of Bob Dole. Bob Dole was probably the worst candidate for president in the last 20 years. And the election results reflected that. But he was married to a wonderful woman, beautiful and very smart. She also loved the Lord. She wrote, it is not what I do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through me. God does not want worldly successes. He wants me. He wants my heart in submission to him. Life is not just a few years to spend on self-indulgence and career advancement. It's a privilege, a responsibility, a stewardship to be lived according to a much higher calling. God's calling. This alone gives true meaning to life, unquote. And if you've ever wondered what the true meaning of life is, it is Hidden in plain view. It is the call of God on your life. It is what God has called you to do. And what is the most important thing that he's called you to do? To know him. To love him. To have friendship and fellowship with him. So does, God, does Paul take little stock in credentials? Is he saying, well, it doesn't really matter if you can't read and write, if you can't spell, if you can't speak... Does any of that stuff matter? I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about. I think Paul is addressing those who offer a piece of paper as their credential. That this person will vouch for me, but there is no gifting. There's no calling. There's no evidence of that gift and calling. And you have to understand something. In the ancient world of itinerant preachers... Some would present lengthy letters of recommendation. Who sent you? Why are you here? How are you qualified? Paul is basically saying, look, I don't need for dead or formal letters. And Paul is going to point to the transformed lives of his converts as positive proof that God's grace is not only on his life, but the reality is because Jesus has changed them they become the most compelling evidence for his ministry. Paul refuses to concede that he's using self-promoting tactics to boost his standing in the church. You know, I knew this guy in Southern California who felt that he had to employ gimmicks. You've probably seen people on television who do these theatrical things 
You know, they'll ride around the church on a motorcycle or they'll wring a chicken by its neck for reasons that I don't quite understand. They'll do all kinds of theatrical things in order to entertain and impress the audience. And someone, a mutual friend, said to him, Do you want to be known as the guy who uses gimmicks to attract a following? What happens if you're attracted to a place where they use gimmicks to get you to go to church? Well, the gimmicks have to get greater and greater and greater, and pretty soon you run out of gimmicks. Others might need letters to ensure credibility, but not Paul. He uses that word commend. It's synesthemi. It's from the adjective sistikos. It's only here in the New Testament. It means to recommend someone to someone. And again, it's not wrong to say, hey, could you give me a letter of reference? But remember what the the point of the reference is. It speaks of knowledge, ability, credibility, character, integrity. So Paul says, you want to know about knowledge, ability, integrity, credibility. He says, what about the lives written on the minister's heart? Look at verse 2. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul appeals to the real letter of recommendation. You want a real letter of recommendation? Some people write letters by hand. Paul says, you are the living proof and the living letter of my ministry. Paul raises the question in verse 1. Do we need letters of recommendation for you or from you? And in verse 2, he is in effect answering his own question. That's absurd. You're the letter. You're the proof. Imagine you're growing up in a home. Was there ever a time in your life where you went to your mom or your dad and you go, how can I be sure you're really my mother? How can I be sure you're really my father? Produce the birth certificate. Did your mom and dad happily comply? Did they pull out the birth certificate? See see here under father's name, decline to state. Wait, wait, that's not the right birth certificate. Let's get this other birth certificate where you're on the certificate. Yeah, usually in most children's mind, you see letters, you see pictures of you with your family growing up with your family. Paul is basically saying, look, this is absurd. You're the letter. You're the proof. The critic claimed Paul had no apostolic authority. The critic may have told the congregation, look, the next time Paul shows up, make sure he gives you a letter. Paul reminds them, when I came here and I planted this church and I began this ministry, do you remember who you were? You were pagans. You were idolaters. In 1 Corinthians, he says, remember, you were prostitutes. You were involved in every kind of weird and wicked thing imaginable. But God saved you. You've been changed. Something has happened. Paul preached the gospel. He led them to Christ. The Lord himself pressed his precious seal on them by the ministry that Paul was given to them. Their hearts were changed. Their lives were changed. Everything was different. They were the fruit of his ministry. Paul was enshrined, at least for some of them, in their affections. Paul, but what Paul says is surprising. He says, you are our epistle, written, and I want to draw your attention to this in the phrase, in our hearts. In our hearts. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Titus. He's talking about Timothy. He's talking about himself. Here's the point. Anyone, anyone willing to look could see that Paul cared deeply for the Corinthian church. He wept for them. He prayed for them. He expresses his love and concern. Again, think of the foolishness of a child who says to his his mother, you don't love me. 
And you go, okay, I'm confused. Give birth to you. I feed you every day. I make sure that you're protected and that you're warm. I've loved you. I've hugged you. I've nursed you in sickness and in health. I've done everything in order to make your life bearable. At what point did I sort of leave you with the impression that I don't care about you? Well, when you wouldn't let me have my way. Well, you're six years old. You can't have a Glock 45. There's certain things that aren't good for a child. Anyone who was willing to look could see that Paul cared for them, cherished them. They were dear to him, written, as it were, in his heart. Now, this becomes an important point for each and every man and woman who desires a ministry. Do you desire to do the work of of a minister? Would you like to help people and serve people? I need you to understand something. That means you're going to have to come to grips with maybe the most important question that a person needs to be asked. Are people more important to you than letters of recommendation and credentials? Again, I'm not talking about Training, And I'm not talking about preparation. I'm not saying it's bad to have a THD or a PhD. It's not wrong to have a certificate of ministry. It's not wrong to have an ordination. It's okay to have a good understanding of the Bible. It's great to have a comprehensive understanding of the Old and the New Testament. It's wonderful to have an understanding of Hebrew and Greek. It's great to understand systematic historical theology. All of that stuff is great. Homiletics and hermeneutics are wonderful. But are people dear to you? Do you love them? Do you care for them? Do you feel deeply for them? Do you love them and care for them? And and is it hard for you to let people go? Are you frustrated when the people closest to you aren't growing in grace and in the knowledge of the truth? This is what Paul is basically saying. This is the true credential. It is a heart stamped with a stamp that reads, I love people. Or because it's Valentine's Day, we might say, I heart people. And again, it wasn't simply that they were saved. They were saved and that salvation was known and and read of all men in the area. It's one thing to say that you're saved and it's another thing for everyone around you to say, that person is born again, that person is spirit-filled, that person loves Jesus. Now, I want you to think about what Paul is saying. You have been stamped on the surface of our soul and part of the reality is because everyone you come in contact with says, "Do do you go to Calvary Chapel in Corinth? Because there's something about you. I mean, you're always smiling and you're always saying praise the Lord and you're always looking at the Bible and you're always thinking about what God has done. You talk about his love and his mercy and his grace. You speak of heaven as if you're already there. And of course, I love Spurgeon. Remember what he said? He he would talk to ministers who were in his school and he would say, and when you speak of heaven, your face should shine like the angels themselves. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. (laughs) There's something that glows, that shines. The people of Corinth had turned from idols. The people of Corinth had turned from sexual immorality. They were living lives that were holy and separated. Something was different about them. And when you march through the Old Testament and you look at the characters in the Old Testament, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, you march through and you look at Jeremiah and Isaiah, and you look at Jonah as he marches through Nineveh and he preaches the gospel. Can you see him? There's Jonah marching through the streets. He preaches a message of doom and judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people repent. Beginning with the king, all the way down to the lowest servant. And I'm going to suggest to you, it wasn't because 
completely because of the message of Jonah. Can you imagine? This is your whole message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. End of message. But I suspect that part of the message was Jonah himself. Remember? This is the Jonah who for three days and three nights was in the belly of a sea creature. He himself refers to it in the book of Jonah as the belly of hell. But he was a living epistle known and read of all men. Can you imagine you meet Jonah in the alleys of Nineveh and you look at him and you go, I believe him. There's something about this guy. They look at Nina, they look at Jonah. They look at him and they see him and they conclude God's going to punish sin. God's going to punish sin. Here is this guy. He comes. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of a sea creature. Now, and again, I want you to understand part of what the meaning of that is. You can see. Written all over him, stalking the streets in the neighborhood of Nineveh, the power of the resurrection. Think about this. It isn't just the message that he's he's speaking. He's speaking based on the power that he himself has practically, for all intents and purposes, come back from the dead in order to tell people, based on obedience to God, the message that he's giving to them. And that's who you are. People look at you and they should be able to say with all of their heart, wow, you were dead and now you're alive. You were hurt and now you're healed. You were broken and now you're made whole. Again, Annie Johnson Flint wrote the poem, Hands and Feet. We are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message, written in deed and word. What if the type be crooked? What if the print be blurred? Think about it. What do people read when they see your life? Paul says, you're saved. It's clear what God has done. You are an open book known and read of all people. Because the truth. The truth is people are watching you. They look at what you say. They look at what you do. The world is reading. And by the way, this is an impressive credential. You want my credentials? Here's what Paul is saying. Your changed lives. That's my credential. John Wesley wrote, If doing a good act in public will excite others to do more good, then let your light shine to all. Miss no opportunity to do good. The fact that as a minister, he led them to Christ. He equipped them. He fed them. He encouraged them. He loved them. And look what it says in verse 3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, That is of the heart. What is Paul saying? He is saying, well, look, are the Corinthians Paul's epistle or Christ's epistle? Well, Paul adds, that is of the heart. Or we might say, my heart. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. We use the image of the heart and so does the Bible. To speak of emotion and affection and love. It's interesting. What's tomorrow? Valentine's Day. So the whole world is full of hearts right now. Someone said in the prayer room, it is single awareness day. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you could put it that way, huh? Particularly if you're single. 
But in the, ninth, in the 250s, in the 260s AD, there was a massive persecution that swept throughout the Roman Empire. And the government did something really stupid and foolish. The government thought that in order to recruit men for the military, they had to outlaw marriage. And by the way, when government messes with marriage, it's invariably going to be bad. They outlawed marriage. And there was a pastor named Valentine. And he defied the Roman edict and the Roman law. And he would meet with young men and women who wanted to be married. And then he would secretly marry them in defiance of the Roman law. The reason... He believed that, number one, it was wrong to forbid people to get married. And number two, he knew, he knew that marriage is honorable in all things and that God calls most people to be married. And so he married them. As a matter of fact, he got caught. And from prison, he wrote to the men and women that he had been ministering to. And he was fond of closing his correspondence with, from your valentine. It was a pastor who cared about marriage and he cared about men and women. That's part of the point. When he says, clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. This is this is important when he says of Christ genitive case here, subjective. This could mean of Christ. It means written by Christ or if it's objective Telling about Christ or if it's possessive belonging to Christ. So does this mean written by Christ, telling about Christ, belonging to Christ? I can't tell from the original language. It could mean all of those things. But what is the point? The NIV translates this a letter from Christ ministered. By us, dia, con, nethesia, hyph, imon. Literally, it means have been served or ministered by us. In other words, here, here's the point that Paul is making. The apostle sees himself as his master's amanuasis. Do you know what an amanuasis is? In the ancient world, they would have a secretary. A person would dictate a letter it's, it's sort of like that, that old song that some of you are old enough to remember. Take a letter, Maria, address it to my wife, send a copy to my lawyer. He's, addre- you know, he's addressing a letter and he's saying, I need you to write this down. And that's what an amanuasis was. One person is speaking and another person is writing down literally the words that are being dictated. The, the idea is captured by Weymouth. Pinned by us. Paul says that the Corinthian Christians are the result of our ministry. And what's the outcome? The ministry was written on the hearts of his converts. In one sense, Paul pictures himself as God's secretary. Writing the word of God into the lives of people. It's Jesus who loved you. It's Jesus who changed you. It's Jesus who saved you. And Paul is writing. He's writing what God has asked him to write. He's saying what God has asked him to say. And that becomes part of the point. Paul was the human instrument used by Jesus to bring them to Jesus. And that's the meaning of the expression ministered by us. The Lord Jesus was the one who did the work in their lives, but he did it through the ministry of Paul. That's why I'll always be grateful. I will always be grateful for the person. This person who who was preaching the night that I got saved, he didn't know. I mean, there was a crowd of 2,000 people and he was preaching the gospel and telling the story of Jesus, how he was the resurrection and the life. He talked about the reality of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. He was preaching the gospel. You know, the story of Lazarus, how he was dead and how his sister came to him and said, 
Lord, we know that he's going to come back to life in the last days. And remember, Jesus said to his sister, let him loose, roll away the stone. And you remember what she said. But Lord, he stinketh. That's the old King James. He's corrupt. His body has already started to decay. And it was as if I could hear the Holy Spirit whisper in my own heart. You stinketh. Well, you know, I'm a junior in high school and adolescents aren't always good with personal hygiene. So I'm smelling. And I realized the Holy Spirit wasn't talking about body odor. The Holy Spirit was talking about the corrupt circumstances of my heart and my life. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. You know the story. He's wrapped in his grave clothes. And he comes hopping out of the tomb. And it was as if a light went on inside of my heart. And I heard a voice whisper, I'm the resurrection and the life. And I thought just for a single second, I thought for a single second, if Jesus is alive, I wonder if he can save me. I wonder if he can change me. I wonder if my life can be different. And he offered an invitation. That if anybody wanted to have a right relationship with God in Christ, to come forward. There's about 2,000 people. Only like three people came forward. And back in those days, if three people come forward out of 2,000, it's like a bus. It means that the night was a tragic, tragic disappointment. And I remember looking at him and I see this look of disappointment and I think, how does this guy know me? He wasn't disappointed that I was coming forward. He was disappointed that only three people came forward. And I remember years later telling him that he was preaching the night that I got saved. And that God used him to bring me to Christ. God used him as the instrument the vocal instrument where I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit and I embraced the notion that a real and true and living God could change my heart. And guess what? It's hard. It's very difficult not to love someone who's done so much for you. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is using an Old Testament metaphor when he talks about the tablets Or the tables, if you will. The two pieces of stone which contain the Ten Commandments inscribed by the finger of God in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. The Greek word plaques. It it occurs only here and twice. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, the stone tablets of, of the covenant. The word plaques is an interesting word because it just literally means something that's flat on the surface. And we even now use that, employ that in our modern vernacular, a tablet. You have a tablet. It's a flat thing that you use in order to access information. Paul is using it in the sense of a contrast. He's contrasting a word that's written and then another word that's written. One is external. The other one is internal. Moses wrote God's law on tablets of stone. Now God is going to write His law on the surface of your soul, inside of your heart. As a matter of fact, it's sort of alluded to in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'm thinking in verses 16 and 17 where it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. There's something way more powerful that has been written on the surface of the soul of the Christian. It isn't just simply you have to obey God. It's... Jesus loves you and forgives you and has washed you and cleansed you and forgiven you. The law was internal. Grace is, the law was external. Grace is internal. Paul is in effect saying anyone can read. Anyone can look at a tablet. You can go outside of the sanctuary, hang a right, and look at the Ten Commandments posted on the wall. 
Anyone can read pages written with pen and ink. But only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus can write with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit on the surface of your soul. And has Jesus written the word saved, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven? That's part of the point. Paul suggests God has not written with ink. Ink can and will fade. And you see, if you have ever looked at papyri from the 2nd century and the 3rd century and the 4th century, what's really interesting about papyri from all of those times, they fade away. Some of you are old enough to go digging through the closet and you can find your report card when you were in the 1st grade. And you go, look at this, man. This thing is like, this is an antique. And the writing is faded. But the Lord writes with a kind of supernatural permanent marker with the Holy Spirit. A rock with writing on a stone can't change anyone's life. What will change your life? When God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, writes on the surface of your soul with a permanent marker. And so that's the idea. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to change the person forever. Think about what you're reading. In verse 2, Paul says the Corinthians were his letter of recommendation. In verse 3, Paul gives the explanation. You connect the two thoughts. You are our epistle because you're obviously, clearly, unmistakably an epistle of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Corinthians were Paul's letter of recommendation because it was clear to everyone who was willing to see what God had done in their lives. It's God who accomplishes the work of salvation. It's faith alone. It's grace alone. It's Jesus alone. Only Jesus can convert someone. Only Jesus can grow someone up. So in one sense, Paul is saying that Jesus creates the letter, which is the lives of the believer. And the minister looks after this letter and cares for the people. He basically says that's what makes him a minister. Jesus, written in the lives of the people, the spirit of God, written in the conduct and the behavior of the people, the law of God, written in the hearts of the people. No wonder Paul will later write in Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The word translated new creature is the word we get our word species. It means a new life form, never known before, newly discovered, a brand new type of life. That's why he can write, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then he writes about the lifestyle that's fit for God by God in verse 4. And we have such a trust through Christ toward God. Do you understand what he's saying? This is my credential. You're my credential. This is my credential. Your life is different. This is my credential. Jesus Christ, the Lord, has really saved you. And so how can Paul speak with such confidence? With such boldness? That's what he says in verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Paul is defending his apostolic calling. It might seem like self-commendation, but that's not true. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that his boldness, his confidence is rooted and grounded in the living Lord of life. Paul has no confidence in himself. He doesn't have confidence in his ability, but rather in the ministry of Christ. Salvation is the work of Jesus. Jesus doesn't, if Jesus doesn't change you, your life won't be changed. When people say, I need, I need to bring someone here so that they can hear what you're saying so their life will be changed. But my words can't change anyone. 
This is why it's so important to preach the gospel, don't you think? This is why it's so important, because how can a person's life be changed if they're not given the word of life? It's remarkable. The remarkable change in the Corinthians' lives is what Paul appeals to for the proof of his ministry. There was a man named Joseph Parker. He was a congregational minister at a time when Charles Haddon Spurgeon had the biggest church in all of London. It was like 5,000 people were going to the church. And Joseph Parker was across the way, and his church wasn't nearly so big, but he was a wonderful man of God. He loved the Lord, and he was a brilliant Bible teacher. And one man after a service came up to him and chastised him for some minor uh, failure, some tiny thing that was relatively unimportant. And so the person says to Joseph Parker, he points out his fault and his, his failure. And then Joseph Parker says, but did you get anything out of the sermon? Was there anything you did get out of it? And the critic just looked at him and was silent. Can you imagine? You go to a church and you're looking to try and catch the teacher in a minor mistake instead of asking and answering the question, how is God speaking to my heart? And so Paul writes in verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Do you remember? This is the answer to the question that he asked in chapter 2, verse 16. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Chapter 2, verse 16. And who is sufficient for these things? In other words, when God calls you into the ministry and God gives you an opportunity to share the gospel of hope, the gospel of grace, the gospel of life, and you're going, am I doing it right or am I doing it wrong? I mean, how can I be sure? How, you know, what if I, what if someone, what if I say something and it's not the right thing? Can you imagine somebody close to you is dying? They're in the hospital. The doctor calls and says, we don't think that they're going to live through the day. And the Lord says, go to the hospital and tell them about Jesus. And you panic. What? What? What if I, what if I get it wrong? What if I don't say the right words? What if I don't pray the right prayer? Who is sufficient for such things? And Paul writes, who is adequate? That's what the word means, by the way. The adjective, hikanos, frequent in the New Testament. The noun, hikanotes, only here. To be made adequate, our adequacy, our sufficiency. Who is sufficient for such things? And so Paul says, look, our, our adequacy or our sufficiency comes from the Lord Jesus. Look what he's doing. Paul's not anxious to take credit for himself. Paul realizes that if God isn't in it, if God has not made him sufficient, then his ministry won't be accomplished. And for those who would pit Paul against Peter, they forget what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. As his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and his virtue. Peter says. It's Jesus who makes us sufficient. Paul says it's Jesus who makes us sufficient. Paul makes it clear that the true minister is called by God and then qualified by God and then made fit by God by the mercies of God. And that's his only sufficiency. I want you to listen carefully. Paul couldn't make himself fit for ministry. Can you imagine if Paul on the road to Damascus says, I think I'm going to go to seminary and I think I'm going to learn Hebrew. Well, wait a minute. I already know Hebrew. 
I think I'm going to learn Greek. Well, wait a minute. I already know Greek. Hey, I think I'm going to read the writings of these other guys. Well, look, I already know. I've already been schooled by the most famous rabbi in the whole wide world. Paul is making it clear that the only thing that qualified him to give his testimony is because Jesus called him and regenerated him and saved him and forgave him and placed him in the ministry. So what are the credentials of the minister? The power of God, the presence of God, the power and the presence of Jesus in the life of the minister. The evidence that God is moving and working in that ministry. The fact that works for Jesus are being done and could only be done because of what Jesus has done. And if anyone, if anyone, if anyone could have leaned on his own resources, it was Paul. I'm trying to think of a man, or a woman for that matter, with a greater intellect than Paul. I'm trying to think of someone with impeccable religious training. I'm trying to think of someone more schooled, more disciplined. I'm trying to think of anyone, even his enemies conceded and paid tribute to his learning in Acts chapter 26, 24. Even when he's held by the officials in the Roman Empire, the king himself says, Paul, your great learning has made you mad. He has enormous ambition, drive determination. He has a powerful and a forceful personality. He is eloquent in tongue and forceful pen. He's a natural cosmopolitan. He's raised a Jew in a Greek city under the auspices of the Roman government and has citizenship. He has two earned jurist doctorates, one in the Jewish law and one in the Gentile law. He is trained in both Jewish and Gentile law. He speaks Greek. He speaks Hebrew. He speaks Aramaic. He understands and and is conversant in Latin. He has a knack for forming friendship. He can inspire loyalty. And the people at Corinth wonder whether or not he's really a for real minister. Paul has no confidence in any of that. He says, when I came to you, I didn't purpose to know anything except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he has no confidence in human resources. His sufficiency is just completely in the Lord. Paul rejected the notion that in and of himself, he had the ability to think or act in any way that could be called good or right, all of his knowledge, all of his holiness, all of his power came from one simple thing. He understood and embraced that Jesus Christ was the Lord and that he was changed from the inside out. Paul understood that in the Christian life you have to lose to gain. You have to give to obtain. You have to be humble to be exalted. You have to be the least in order to be the greatest. And you have to die. If you'll ever hope to live. Someone has said the beginning of greatness is to be little. And the increase of greatness is to be less. And the perfection of greatness. Is to be nothing. And I think it's true. If by nothing we mean nothing in and of ourself, but everything in Christ. In the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he said, Follow my example as I follow the Lord. Last week we began to understand something that in order for a healthy church to be healthy, there has to be discipline. In what sense? 
that people who name the name of Christ, who love the Lord Jesus, who say, I am a Christian and I believe that the Bible is true and I believe that what Jesus says is true, should, by all, for all intents and purposes, be willing to submit themselves, not to me, but to Jesus and to the Bible. And now Paul is going to remind us that a healthy church also has to incorporate godly leadership. But how can you tell if you have a godly leader? Well, he or she should love you. And your life should be changed because of the ministry of Jesus. And if it has changed, that means you're in a good place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. Paul, defending his right to be a minister, reminding us that the true minister of God is called by God and set apart and that their life has been changed by Jesus. And they're willing to talk about what it means to have a changed life. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would be men and women who desire to do what Jesus asked us to do. To love the Lord and to love each other and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd give us a willingness to lose in order to gain and to give in order to obtain. To be humble if we're ever going to be exalted. And to be the last. And to die in order to live. Lord, we pray that our church and the church of Jesus throughout this community and throughout our country would be found with godly men and women who know you and who love you in Jesus name. Amen.